I had seen the magic shop from afar several times. I had passed it once or twice. A shop window of alluring little objects. Magic balls, magic hens, wonderful cones, ventriloquist dolls, the material of the basket trick, packs of cards that looked all right, and all that sort of thing. But never had I thought of going in until one day, almost without warning, Gip hauled me by my finger right up to the window and so conducted himself that there was nothing for it but to take him in. I had not thought the place was there, to tell the truth. A modest-sized frontage in Regent Street, between the picture shop and the place where the chicks run about, just out of patent incubators. There it was, sure enough. I had fancied it was down near the circus, around the corner in Oxford Street, or even in Holborn, always over the way and a little inaccessible. It had been with something of the mirage in its position, but here it was now, quite indisputably, and the fat end of Gip's pointing finger made a noise upon the glass. If I was rich, said Gip, dabbing a finger at the disappearing egg, I'd buy myself that, and that, which was the crying baby, very human in that, which was a mystery, and called, so a neat card asserted, by one in astonishing your friends. Anything, said Gip, will disappear under one of those cones. I have read about it in a book, and there, Dada, in the vanishing halfpenny, only they've put it this way up, so as we can't see how it's done. Gip, dear boy, inherits his mother's breeding, and he did not propose to enter the shop or worry in any way. Only you know, quite unconsciously, he lugged my finger doorward and made his interest clear. That, he said, and pointed to the magic bottle. If you had that, I said, at which promising inquiry he looked up with a sudden radiance. I could show it to Jesse, he said, thoughtful as ever of others. It's less than a hundred days to your birthday, Gibbles, I said, and laid my hand on the door handle. Gib made no answer, but his grip tightened. But his grip tightened on my finger, and so we came into the shop. It was no common shop, this. It was a magic shop, and all the prancing pre precedence Gib would have taken in the matter of mere toys was wanting. He left the burden of the conversation on me. It was a little narrow shop, not very well lit and the doorbell pinged again with a plaintive note as we closed it behind us. For a moment or so we were alone and could glance about us. There was a tiger in the paper mache on the glass case that covered the low counter. A grave kind-eyed tiger had that waggled his head in a methodical manner. There were several crystal spheres, a china hand holding magic cards, a stock of magic fishbowls at various scenes and an immodest magic hat that shamelessly displayed its springs. On the floor were magic mirrors, one to draw you out long and thin, one to swell your head and vanish your legs, and one to make you short and fat like a drought. And while we were laughing at these, the shopman, as I supposed, came in. At any rate, there he was, behind the counter, a curious, sallow, dark man, with, with one ear larger than the other, and a chin like a toe cap of a boot. What can we have the pleasure, he said, spreading his long magic fingers on the glass case. And so with a start we were aware of him. I want, I said, to buy my little boy a few simple tricks. Legitimain, he asked, mechanical, domestic. Anything amusing, said I. Hmm, said the shopman, and scratched his head for a moment as if thinking. Then quite distinctly he drew from his head a glass ball. Something in this way, he said, and held it out. The action was unexpected. I had seen the trick done at entertainments endless times before. It's part of the common stock of conjurers, 
but I had not expected it. That's good, I said with a laugh. Isn't it, said the shopman. Gibbs stretched out his disengaged hand to take the object and found merely a blank palm. It's in your pocket, said the shopman, and there it was. How much will it be, I asked. We make no charge for glass balls, said the shopman politely. We get them. He picked out he picked one out of his elbow as he spoke. Free. He produced another from the back of his neck and laid it beside its predecessor on the counter. Gip regarded his glass ball sagely, then directed a look of inquiry at the two on the counter, and finally brought his round-eyed scrutiny to the shopman who smiled. You may have those too, said the shopman, and if you don't mind, one from my mouth. Gip counseled me mutely for a moment, and then in profound silence put away the four balls, resumed my reassuring finger, and nerved himself for the next event. We get all our smaller tricks in that way, the shopman remarked. I laughed in the manner of one who subscribes to a jest. Instead of going to the wholesale shop, I said, of course it's cheaper. In a way, said the shopman, though we pay in the end, but not so heavily as people suppose. Our larger tricks and our daily provisions and all the other things we want, we get out of that hat. And you know, sir, if you'll excuse my saying it, there isn't a wholesale shop, not for genuine magic goods. Sir, I don't know if you noticed our inscription, the genuine magic shop. He drew a business card from his cheek and handed it to me. Genuine, he said with a finger on the word, and added there is absolutely no deception, sir. He seemed to be carrying out the joke pretty thoroughly, I thought. He turned to Gip with a smile of remarkable affability. You, you know you are the right sort of... You, you know you are the right sort of boy. I was surprised at his knowing that, because in the interests of discipline, we keep it rather secret, even at home. But Gip received in an unflinching silence, keeping a steadfast eye on him. It's only the right sort of boy gets through that doorway. And as if by way of illustration, there came a rattling at the door, and a squeaking little voice could be heard faintly. Nyar, I want to go in there, Dada. I want to go in there. Nyar. And then the accents of a downtro downtrodden parent urging consolation and propitations. It's locked, Edward, he said. But it isn't, said I. It is, sir, said the shopman. Always for that sort of child. Always for that sort of child. And he spoke. We had a glimpse of the other youngster, a little white-faced pallid from sweet eating and over-sapid food and distorted by evil passions, a ruthless little egotist pawing at the enchanted pain. It's no good, sir, said the shopman as I moved my natural helpfulness, doorward, and, and presently the spoilt child was carried off howling. How do you manage that, I said, breathing a little more freely. Magic, said the shopman, with a careless wave of the hand, and behold, sparks of colored fire flew out of his fingers and vanished into the shadows of the shop. You were saying, he said, addressing himself toward Gip, before you came in that you would like to buy, you would like one of our buy one and astonish your friends boxes. Gip, after a gallant effort, said yes. It's in your pocket. And leaning over the counter, he realized he really had an extraordinarily long body. This amazing person produced the article in the customary conjurer's manner. Paper, he said, and took a sheet out of that empty hat with the springs. And behold, his mouth was a string box from which he drew an unending thread, which when he had tied his parcel, he bit off. And it seemed to me, swallowed the ball of string. And then he lit a candle at the nose of one of the ventriloquist dummies, stuck one of his fingers, which had become sealing wax red, into the flame, and so sealed the parcel. Then there was the disappearing egg, he remarked, 
and produced one from within my coat breast and packed it. Also the crying baby, very human. I handed each parcel the gift as it was ready, and he clasped them to his chest. He said very little, but his eyes were eloquent. The clutch of his arms was eloquent, and he was the playground of unex he was the playground of unspeakable emotions. These, you know, were real magics. Then, with a start, I discovered something moving about in my hat, something soft and jumpy. I whipped it off, and a ruffled pigeon, no doubt a confederate, dropped out and ran on the counter and went. I fancy into a cardboard box behind the papier-mâché tiger. Tut tut," said the shopman, dexterously relieving me of my headdress. "Careless bird," and as I live, nested. He shook my hat and shook out into his extended hand two or three eggs, a large marble, a watch, and about half a dozen of the inevitable glass balls, and then crumpled, crinkled paper, more and more and more, taking all the time of the way, taking all the time of the way in which people neglect to brush their hats inside, as well as out, politely of course, but with all certain personal application. All sorts of things accumulate, sir, not you, of course, in particular. Nearly every customer. Astonishing what they carry about with them. The crumpled paper rose and billowed on the counter more and more, until he was nearly hidden from us, until he was altogether hidden, and still his voice went on and on. We, none of us know what the fair semblance of a human may none of us know what the fair semblance of a human being may conceal, sir. Are we all then no better than brushed exteriors or whited sepulchres? His voice stopped exactly like when you hit a neighbor's gramophone with a well-aimed brick the same instant silence and the rustle of the paper stopped and everything was still have you done with my hat i said after an interval there was no answer i stared at gip and gip stared at me and there were our distortions in the magic mirrors looking very rum and grave and quiet i think we'll go now i said will you tell me how much all this comes to i say i said on a rather louder note i want the bill and my hat please it might have been a sniff from behind the paper pile. Let's look behind the counter, Gip, I said. He's making fun of us. I led Gip round the head-wagging tiger. And what do you think there was behind the counter? No one at all. Only my hat on the floor and a common conjurer's lop-eared white rabbit lost in meditation and looking as stupid, as stupid and crumbled as only a conjurer's rabbit can do. I resumed my hat, lollop to lollop or so out of my way. Dada, said Gip in a guilty whisper. What is it, Gip, said I. I do like this shop, Dada. So should I, I said to myself, if the counter wouldn't suddenly extend itself to shut one off from the door. But I didn't call Gip's attention to that. Pussy, he said with a hand out to the rabbit as it came lolloping past us. Pussy, do Gip a magic. And his eye followed it as it squeezed through a door. I had certainly not remarked a moment before. Then this door opened wider, and the man with one ear larger than the other appeared again. He was smiling. He was smiling still, but his eyes met mine with something between amusement and defiance. You'd like to see our, so our showroom, sir, he said, with an innocent suavity. Gip tugged my finger forward. I glanced at the counter and met the shopman's eye again. I was beginning to think the magic was just, was just a little too genuine. We haven't very much time, I said. But somehow we were inside the showroom before I could finish that. All goods of the same quality, said the shopman, rubbing his, fle his flexible hands together. And that is the best. Nothing in this place that isn't genuine magic and warranted thoroughly rum. Excuse me, sir? I felt, him <clears throat> I felt him pulling at something that clung to my coat sleeve. And then I saw he held a little wriggling red demon by the tail. 
the little creature bit and fought and tried to get at his hand, and in a moment he tossed it carelessly behind the counter. No doubt the thing was only an image of twisted Indiana, India rubber, but for the moment, and his gesture was exactly that of a man who handles some petty-biting bit of petty-biting bit of vermin. I glanced at Gip, but Gip was looking at a magic rocking horse. I was glad he hadn't seen the thing. I say, I said in an undertone, indicating Gip and the Red Demon with my eyes, you haven't many things like that about, have you? None of ours. Probably brought it with you, said the shopman, also in an undertone and with a more dazzling smile than ever. Astonishing what people will carry about with them unawares. And then to Gip, do you see anything you fancy here? There were many things that Gip fancied here. He turned to this astonishing tradesman with a mingled confidence and respect. Is that a magic sword, he said. A magic toy sword. It neither bends, breaks, nor cuts the finger. It renders the bearer invincible in battle against anyone under eighteen. Half a crown to seven and six pence according to size. These panoplies on the cards are for juvenile knights, errant and very useful. Shield of safety, sandals of swiftness, helmet of invisibility. Oh, daddy, gasped Gip. I tried to find out what they cost, but the shopman did not heed me. He had Gip now. He had got him away from my finger, and he had embarked upon the exposition of all his confounded stock. Nothing was going to stop him. Presently I saw, with a, calm, with a qualm of distrust, something very like jealousy, that Gip had hold of this person's finger as usually he had hold of mine. No doubt the fellow was interesting, I thought, and had an interestingly faked lot of stuff, but really good faked stuff, still. I wandered after them, saying very little, but keeping an eye on the pre on this prestidigital fellow. After all, Gip was enjoying it, and no doubt when the time came to go, we should be able to go quite easily. It was a long rambling place, that, show that showroom, a gallery broken up by stands and stalls and pillars, with archways leading off to other departments, in which the queerest-looking assistants loafed and stared at one, with perplexing mirrors and curtains. So perplexing indeed were these that I was presently unable to make out the door by which we had come. The shopman showed Gip magic trains that ran without steam or clockwork, just as you set the signals, and then some very valuable boxes of soldiers that all, that all came alive directly. He took off the lid and said, I myself have a very quick ear. It was a tongue-twisting sound, but Gip, he has his mother's ears, got it in no time. Bravo, said the shopman, putting the men back into the box unceremoniously and handing it to Gip. Now, said the shopman, and in a moment, Gip had made them all alive again. You take that box, said the, asked the shopman. We'll take that box, said I, unless you charge its full value, in which case I would need a trust magnet. Dear heart, no, said the shopman, swept the little men back again, shut the lid, waved the box in the air, and there it was in brown paper, tied up and, and with Gip's full name and address on the paper. The shopman laughed at my amazement. This is a genuine magic shop, he said. The real thing. It's a little too genuine for my taste, I said again. After that, he fell to, showing Gip tricks and odd tricks, and still odder the way they were done. He explained them, he turned them inside and out, and there was, dear, there was the dear little chap, nodding with the busy bit of a head in the sagest manner. I did, not as, I did not attend as well as I might. Hey, presto, said the magic shop man. And then there, there would come the clear small, hey, presto, of the boy. But it was distracted by other things. But I was distracted by other things. I was being borne in upon me, just how tremendously rum this place was. 
It was, so to speak, inundated with the sense of rumness. There was something a little rum about the fixtures even, about the ceiling, about the floor, about the casually distributed chairs. I had a queer feeling that whenever I wasn't looking at them, straight they went askew, and moved about, and played a noiseless puss in the corner behind my back. And the cornice had a serpentine design with masks, masks altogether too expressive for proper plaster. Then abruptly my attention was caught by one of the odd-looking assistants. He was some way off, and evidently unaware of my presence. I saw a sort of three-quarter length of him over a pile of toys and through an arch, and you know he was leaning against the pillar in an idle sort of way, doing the most horrid things with his features. The particular horrid thing he did was with his nose. He did it just as though he was idle and wanted to amuse himself. First of all, it was a short, blobby nose, and then suddenly he shot it out like a telescope, and then out it flew and became thinner and thinner until it was a long, red, flexible whip, like a thing in a nightmare it was. He flourished it about and flung it forth as a flyfisher flings his line. My instant thought was that Gip mustn't see him. I turned about, and there was Gip, quite preoccupied with the shopman, and thinking no evil, they were whispering together and looking at me. Gip was standing on a little stool, and and the shopman was holding a sort of big red drum, a sort of big drum in his hand. I didn't seek, Dada, cried Gip. You're he. And before I could do anything to prevent it, the shopman had clapped the big drum over him. I saw that was up directly. Take that off, I cried this instant. You'll frighten the boy. Take it off. The shopman, with his unequal ears, did so without a word, and held the big, the big cylinder towards me to show its emptiness. And the little tool was vacant. In that instant, my boy had utterly disappeared. You know, perhaps that sinister something that comes like a hand of the out of the Unless one is wealthy, there is no use in being a charming fellow. Romance is the privilege of the rich, not the profession of the unemployed. The poor should be practical and prosaic. It is better to have a permanent income than to be fascinating. These are the great truths of modern life which Huey Erskine never realized. Poor Huey. Intellectually, we must admit he was not of much importance. He never said a brilliant or even an ill-natured thing in his life. But then he was wonderfully good-looking, with crisp brown hair, his clear-cut profile, and his gray eyes. He was as popular with men as he was with women, and he had every accomplishment except that of making money. His father had bequeathed him his cavalry sword and a history of the Peninsular War in fifteen volumes. Huey hung the first over his looking-glass, put the second on a shelf between Ruff's Guide and Bailey's Magazine, and lived on two hundred a year that an old aunt allowed him. He had tried everything. He had gone on to the stock exchange for six months, but what was a butterfly to do among bulls and bears? He had been a tea merchant for a little longer, but had soon tired of Pico and Souchong. Then he had tried selling dry sherry. That did not answer. The sherry was a little too dry. Ultimately, he became nothing. A delightful, ineffectual young man with a perfect profile and no profession. To make matters worse, he was in love. The girl he loved was Laura Merton the daughter of a retired colonel who had lost his temper and his digestion in India, and never found either of them again. Laura adored him, and he was ready to kiss her shoestrings. 
They were the handsomest couple in London, and had not a penny piece between them. The colonel was very fond of Huey, but would not hear of any engagement. Come to me, my boy, when you have got ten thousand pounds of your own, and we will see about it, he used to say. And Huey looked very glum on those days, and had to go to Laura for consolation. One morning, as he was on his way to Highland Park, where the Mertons lived, he dropped in to see a great friend of his, Alan Trevor. Trevor was a painter indeed. Few people escape that nowadays, but he was also an artist, and artists are rather rare. Personally, he was a strange fellow, with a freckled face and a red ragged beard. However, when he took up the brush, he was a real master, and his pictures were eagerly sought after. He had been very much attracted by Huey at first, it must be acknowledged, entirely on account of his personal charm. The only people a painter should know, he used to say, are people who are beaten beautiful, people who are an artistic pleasure to look at, and an intellectual response to talk to. Men who are dandies and women who are darlings rule the world. At least they should do so. However, after he got to know Huey better, he liked him quite as much for his bright, buoyant spirit and general reckless nature and had given him the permanent entree to his studio. When Huey came in, he found Trevor putting the finishing touches to a wonderful life-size picture of a beggar man. The beggar himself was standing on a raised platform in a corner of the studio. He was a wizened old man, with a face like a wrinkled parchment, and a most piteous expression. Over his shoulders was flung a coarse brown coat, all tears and tatters, his thick boots, were patched and cobbled with the one hand he leant on a rough stick, while with the other he held out his battered hat for alms. What an amazing model, whispered Huey, as he shook hands with his friend. An amazing model, shouted Trevor at the top of his voice. I should think so. Such beggars as he are not to be met with every day. A Truvali, mon cher, a living Velasquez. My stars, what an etching Rambert would have made of him. Poor old chap, said Huey, how miserable he looks. But I suppose to you painters, his face is his fortune. Certainly, replied Trevor. You don't want a beggar to look happy, do you? How much does a model get for sitting, asked Huey, as he found himself comfortable seat on the divan. A shilling an hour. And how much do you get for your picture, Alan? Oh, for this, I get two thousand. Pounds? Guineas. Painters, poets, and physicians always get guineas. Well, I think the model should have a percentage, cried Huey, laughing. They work quite as hard as you do. Nonsense, nonsense. Why look at the trouble of laying on the paint alone, and standing all day long as one's easel? It's all very well, Huey, for you to talk, but I assure you that there are moments when art almost attains the dignity of manual labor. But you mustn't chatter. I'm very busy. Smoke a cigarette and keep quiet. After some time, the servant came in and told Trevor that the frame-maker wanted to speak to him. Don't run away, Huey, he said as he went out. I will be back in a moment. The old beggar man took advantage of Trevor's absence to rest for a moment on a wooden bench that was behind him. He looked so forlorn and wretched that Huey could not help pitying him and felt in his pockets to see what money he had. All he could find was a sovereign and some coppers. Poor old fellow, he thought to himself. He wants it more than I do, but it means no handsome for a fortnight. And he walked across the studio and slipped the sovereign into the beggar's hand. 
The old man started, and a faint smile fitted across his withered lips. Thank you, sir, he said. Thank you. Then Trevor arrived, and Huey took his leave, blushing a little at what he had done. He spent the day with Laura, got a charming scolding for his extravagance, and had to walk home. That night he strolled into the Palin Club about eleven o'clock and found Trevor sitting by himself in the smoking room, drinking hock and seltzer. Well, Alan, did you get the picture finished all right, he said as he lit his cigarette. Finished and framed, my boy, answered Trevor. And by the by, you have made a conquest. The old model you saw is quite devoted to you, and I had to tell him all about you. Who you are, where you live, and what your income is, what prospects you have. My dear Alan, cried Huey, I shall probably find him waiting for me when I go home. But of course you are only joking, poor old wretch. I wish I could do something for him. I think it is dreadful that anyone should be so miserable. I've got heaps of old clothes at home. Do you think he would care for any of them? Why, his rags were falling to bits. But he looked splendid in them, said Trevor. I wouldn't paint him in a frock coat for anything. What you call rags, I call romance. What seems poverty to you is picturesque to me. However, I'll tell him of your offer. Alan, said Huey seriously, you painters are a heartless lot. An artist's heart is his head, replied Trevor, and our business is to realize the world as we see it, not to reform it as we know it. A chanson metier, and now tell me how Laura is, the old model was quite interested in her. You don't mean to say you talked to him about her, said Huey. Certainly I did. He knows all about the relentless colonel, the lovely Laura, and the ten thousand dollars. He told that old beggar all my private affairs, cried Huey, looking very red and angry. My dear boy, said Trevor, smiling, that old beggar, as you call him, is one of the richest men in Europe. He can buy all London tomorrow without overdrawing his account. He has a house in every capital, dines off gold plates, and can prevent Russia going to war when he chooses. What on earth do you mean, exclaimed Huey. What I say, said Trevor, the old man you saw today in the studio was Baron Hausberg. He's a great friend of mine, buys all my pictures and that sort of thing and gave me a commission a month ago to paint him as a beggar. Que voulez-vous, la fantaisie d'un millionaire? And I must say, he made a magnificent figure in his rags, or perhaps I should say in my rags. They're an old suit I got in Spain. Baron Hausberg cried Huey, good heavens. I gave him a sovereign, and he sank into an armchair, the picture of dismay. Gave him a sovereign, shouted Trevor, and he burst with a roar of laughter. My dear boy, you'll never see it again. Son affaire, sis, l'argent de sauteur. I think you might have told me, to Alan, said Huey sulkily, and not have let me make such a fool of myself. Well, to begin with, Huey, said